0: verdict stands for the right of American people to speak out against government, the right of of an American jury, six people from the heart of this country, right from the middle of Oklahoma, to speak out to the whole nation and say, as a jury, we don't believe in the government standards, we don't believe in the gobbledygook and the numbers games and the numbers crunching, we don't believe in all of the things that have caused the truth to be hidden from America. The American people uh, in, in the middle of America believe that they've been lied to. They believe they've been lied to by the corporations. They believe they've been lied to by the government agencies that are supposed to be protecting our people. Oklahoma City, 1979. To... The civil trial from the Karen Silkwood estate against the Kerr-McGee Corporation has just ended. The jury found Kerr-McGee who operated a nuclear fuel plant liable for over $10 million in damages to the family of Karen Silkwood, a lab tech who worked for the plant in Crescent, Oklahoma. Karen Silkwood is dead. She was killed in an auto crash at age 28 in November of 1974. But Karen Silkwood's brief life and the mysterious circumstances of her death helped expose horrifying negligence regarding health and safety at Kerr-McGee. Shortly before she died, Silkwood was collecting evidence on behalf of her union about dangerous safety violations at the plant. Kerr-McGee was cutting corners in the production of plutonium fuel rods, putting workers, the environment, and the people of Oklahoma at serious risk. On November 5th, 1974, Karen Silkwood would be contaminated with plutonium, and on November 13th of that year, she would die in a single-car accident on State Highway 74, just as she was on her way to deliver evidence of safety violations at Kerr-McGee to a reporter from the New York Times. The Oklahoma Highway Patrol investigated the crash and quickly ruled that she had merely fallen asleep at the wheel But further study from private investigators hired by Karen Silkwood's family and her union suggested something different. That someone had deliberately run her off the road and killed her. This is a conspiracy you can believe in. Welcome to another episode of Conspiracy You Can Believe In. This is a podcast about conspiracies that actually happened or have some credibility to them. Today, we're talking about the case of Karen Silkwood, a chemical technician at a Kerr-McGee plutonium fuel plant who died under mysterious circumstances. On November 13, 1974, Silkwood's Honda Civic was found wrecked off the shoulder of State Highway 74 outside of Oklahoma City. She had been under assignment from her union, the Oil, Chemical and Atomic Workers, or the OCAW, to collect evidence of safety violations at her plant. According to witnesses, who spoke to her that day, she had files and photographs documenting safety violations, and she was on her way to speak to a reporter from the New York Times just before the crash. According to state and federal investigations, this was a one-car accident. But as supporters of the union would collect more details about the wreck and about kerr treatment of Silkwood just before her death, a growing number of people in the country began to question if this was just an accident. Her death would spawn a congressional investigation, a precedent-setting civil case, and even a 1983 movie about her life starring Meryl Streep. Silkwood's death would become one of those famous causes that attract national attention for a brief period. But it's important not to lose track of who Karen Silkwood was. The details of her death are mysterious, and they hint at something sinister. But Karen Silkwood lived, too. She was a real person. And she believed, with good reason, that her employer was putting the health of her and her co-workers at risk, and she tried to blow the whistle on it. For that brave act, I believe that she was killed. For the sources on this episode, I mostly relied on The Killing of Karen Silkwood, which is a book by the investigative reporter Richard Rashke. Raschke wrote the book based on extensive interviews with lawyers, witnesses, and investigators who were involved with the Silkwood case, as well as research from court documents and congressional hearings. Now, I want to say all that because this story is a little weird, but the idea that Karen Silkwood was murdered and that it was covered up, that is based on very reasonable suspicions, as we'll hear. I want to start by talking about who Karen Silkwood was. Silkwood was born in 1946 and grew up outside of Port Arthur, Texas. For the most part, she had an ordinary upbringing. Karen excelled at school. She was a straight-A student with a keen interest in science. But at 19, Karen got married, and by her mid-twenties, she had three kids. Unfortunately, it wasn't a happy marriage. Her husband drank too much, he cheated on her constantly, and he put the family deep into debt. After seven years of miserable marriage, Karen walked out and moved to Oklahoma City. Her husband offered a no-fault divorce, but only if he retained custody of the three kids. Karen reluctantly accepted and tried to get on with her life. In August of 1972, Karen Silkwood took a job as a lab analyst at the Kerr-McGee Plutonium Plant in Crescent, Oklahoma, just north of Oklahoma City. Kerr-McGee was under a fixed contract to build over 16,000 plutonium fuel rods for the construction of nuclear power plants. Karen's job was in the metallography lab, where she inspected fuel rods for cracks in the welding and plutonium pellets for defects. Kerr-McGee was founded as a petroleum company, but the plutonium fuel plant in Crescent was an important part of their nuclear portfolio. Shortly after finding work at Kerr-McGee, Silkwood began to date a co-worker, Drew Stevens. They would go on to have a rocky, on-again, off-again relationship, but the two remained close until her death. One thing that Drew got Karen interested in was autocrossing. That's sort of like a slalom track for cars. Karen was a good driver, and she even won a trophy in a women's racing championship. That sounds like a frivolous detail, but it's important later. Karen found another passion shortly after taking the job in the metallography lab. The labor movement. Within three weeks of finding work at Kerr-McGee, Silkwood was on the picket line with her union, the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers. Local 5283. Nobody really knew Karen as a very political person by that point, but her union was on strike for better safety training and stronger health protections in the plant. Karen was dedicated to this cause, and she thought it was her duty to be out on the picket line. Unfortunately, Kerr-McGee broke the strike after two months, hiring dozens of inexperienced 19- and 20-year-olds to scab and do the work of lab technicians In a nuclear plant. The strike was something of a turning point for Karen Silkwood. The union lost, but her experience of standing up for herself and her co-workers had a permanent effect on her. Before, she had little interest in the union or activism of any kind, but as she came under more pressure at work, she got closer with the OCAW. In the spring of 1974, Kerr-McGee began to speed up production. Workers were pushed into 12-hour shifts, seven days a week. Accidents involving plutonium became more common. Plutonium is an element that's not found in a pure state in nature. It's made through a fission process in nuclear reactors. It is extremely hazardous material. If too much of it is stored in the same place, you could risk criticality. That's a nuclear chain reaction that could release deadly amounts of radiation. If you get plutonium inside of your body, either through your mouth, or a cut in your skin, or as it often happens by breathing some in, the plutonium can settle in your lymph nodes, in your liver, and in your bones, causing radiation sickness and eventually cancer. Under strict health and safety codes, it's possible to mitigate these risks, but this wasn't the situation for workers at Kerr McGee. They were working for 12 hours or more straight, under rush deadlines and wearing heavy respirators the whole time, surrounded by barely trained farm boys just out of high school, all in a facility filled with one of the most dangerous substances known to humankind. It's not hard to see. Why Karen Silkwood became such a stickler for workplace safety. To make matters worse at the plant, the union local for Kerr McGee was facing a decertification vote. This meant that if a majority of workers voted the way the employer wanted them to, the OCAW would no longer be representing workers at the bargaining table. Karen and her co workers involved in the local needed to prove to their colleagues why they needed the union. They decided to do this through a health and safety campaign. It was badly needed. Silkwood was elected to the locals' bargaining committee. She was the first woman on a bargaining committee in Kerr-McGee history. She traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with OCAW leaders and draw up a plan to stop the decertification. In September 1974, Silkwood met with Tony Mizaki a legendary figure on the left wing of the labor movement in America. At the time, Mazaki was the president of the OCAW. It was at this meeting, not anywhere during her two years at Kerr-McGee, that Karen learned for the first time that plutonium causes cancer. During the meeting with Mizaki, Silkwood and the bargaining committee drew up a list of almost 40 safety violations at the plant these violations included only having two decontamination showers for 75 workers on a shift managers telling workers to ignore a nuclear criticality siren when it went off and plutonium samples just stored openly on shelves or stuffed into desk drawers but silkwood brought up one safety issue that greatly concerned mazaki she claimed to have evidence of Kerr mcgee covering up shoddy work on their nuclear fuel rods. Part of her job was to inspect the welding on the fuel rods that contained plutonium pellets and made up the guts of a nuclear reactor core. Silkwood saw bad welding on fuel rods firsthand, but found that the images in the plant's quality assurance records had been doctored. If Kerr-McGee was sending out faulty nuclear fuel rods to power plants all over the country, they could risk a radiation leak, or in the worst case, a nuclear meltdown. Tony Mazaki assigned his assistant, an attorney named Steve Wadka, to handle the Kerr-McGee case. They needed Karen to gather information on the fuel rod tampering in secret. They would then leak the case to the media once they had enough proof. Ideally, they could directly report the issue to the Atomic Energy Commission, or the AEC, but the AEC was a government agency tasked with both regulating and promoting the nuclear industry. The conflict of interest worried Mazaki and Wadka, so the union officials felt the best way to keep Kerr-McGee accountable was to publicly carry out a health and safety campaign at the plant, and privately they would gather intel to expose to the press. The public safety campaign worked. Steve Wodka arranged for two nuclear scientists from the University of Minnesota to give public talks in Crescent, Oklahoma, about the dangers of plutonium. Dozens of workers from the Kerr-McGee plant attended these talks, and for many of them, they heard for the first time that plutonium can cause cancer, much like Karen did. They also heard that the standards for plutonium dosage safety had not been changed by the AEC for decades, even though they all knew that even tiny amounts of the element could kill or cause cancer. The Kerr-McGee workers began to ask the scientists about specific incidents that they saw on the job, and as the nuclear experts assured them that they were working in unsafe conditions, the plant workforce began to turn against management. The union decertification vote that October failed, 80-61. to The OCAW would remain at the bargaining table. But there was still work to be done against Kerr-McGee and the OCAW's covert strategy. Silkwood began to collect intel on her employer throughout the fall of 1974. We know from investigation records and witness accounts that Karen claimed to have evidence of at least two big secrets at Kerr-McGee. One, that the company had been falsifying quality assurance records of their nuclear fuel rods. And two, she found evidence of at least 40 pounds of plutonium missing from the plant. Now the industry term for plutonium that you're supposed to have on hand, but for some reason you don't, is called MUF. That's material unaccounted for. And 40 pounds of plutonium is a lot of material unaccounted for. That is enough to make about three atomic bombs. Finding out all of this and being in a high-profile position in the union caused a lot of anxiety for Karen Silkwood. Kerr McGee had a target on her back already due to her reputation as an agitator. But the long hours of work, and the union duties, and the stress from secret whistleblower operations all took a toll. She lost weight. She had trouble sleeping. In fact, she had trouble with insomnia for years and she was prescribed Quaaludes for sleeping. Like a lot of young people in the 1970s, Karen also used Quaaludes recreationally. Her relationship with Drew Stevens suffered due to all the stress that she was under, and the negotiations for the new OCAW contract were coming up that November. Things only got worse for her. On November 5th, while polishing fuel pellets at a glove box, that's those windowed containers with holes for long rubber gloves, Silkwood checked herself for alpha particles. She was reading hot, so she got a nasal swab test that confirmed a moderate contamination of plutonium. Strangely, there was no leak in her gloves, and any readings of the alpha particles came from the side of the glove that touched her skin, that is the side of the rubber that did not touch the fuel pellets in the box. On the 7th of November. Silkwood returned urine and feces samples to the kerr Health Physics Office for study. These samples showed an extremely high level of contamination, levels that would indicate imminent radiation poisoning. But it would later be learned that they were spiked. I believe that these samples were spiked by the company while in the lab, because after her death, Investigators found an untested urine sample from the same time in Karen Silkwood's locker. This sample was tested, and it was not found to have dangerous levels of contamination. This suggests that someone at the company may have put plutonium into the urine samples while they were in the lab. Nasal swabs from Karen Silkwood on November 7th showed moderate plutonium contamination on her face. So a health and safety team took Silkwood to her apartment that day to scan for contamination there. They found hot spots throughout the apartment, but mainly in two places, in the bathroom and in the kitchen, specifically in a bologna and cheese sandwich in her fridge. They found no alpha particles in Karen's car, and the AEC would later investigate and find no trail of contamination from the nuclear plant to the apartment. So that means, whoever put the source of plutonium, about three hundredths of a milligram of it, into her apartment, they did it on purpose. By this point, officials at Kerr-McGee were already suspecting that Silkwood had deliberately poisoned herself to embarrass the company, or that she was smuggling plutonium. This would be the story that they would tell in court and to the press for years. According to the company, They couldn't possibly think of how that much plutonium could get into a bologna sandwich, unless Silkwood deliberately spiked it. Karen Silkwood gave one possible explanation. While she was taking her urine sample that morning, she spilled some on the floor and wiped it up. Then, while rushing around to get ready for work, she briefly placed a package of bologna on the closed toilet seat, and then took it back into the kitchen, made a sandwich, and left it in the fridge. Since the urine had concentrations of plutonium contamination in it, that's how she thought it could have gotten on the baloney. I think this explanation is possible. That is, I don't think Silkwood was lying here. But as we'll discuss later, I think another explanation is more likely. Someone broke into her apartment and spiked her lunch meat with plutonium. But we'll get into how later. Kerr-McGee arranged for Silkwood her roommate Sherry Ellis, and her boyfriend Drew Stevens to go to Los Alamos for Karen to have a full-body scan of any plutonium contamination. This is where the Kerr-McGee theory that she deliberately poisoned herself starts to fall apart for me. During the trip, Stevens asked her point-blank if she ate a plutonium pellet, which she denied. In the days after her contamination, friends and colleagues reported that she was distraught and afraid for her life. Remember, Silkwood had just helped organize a health and safety campaign on the dangers of plutonium for the Kerr-McGee workforce. By all accounts, she was consistently, tirelessly advocating for better safety protections in the plant, to the point where she became a thorn in Kerr-McGee's side. Karen Silkwood, more than almost anyone in the plant, knew that plutonium isn't something that you play around with. I don't think that she ate a nuclear fuel pellet. At Los Alamos, health physicists found that Silkwood had a little under half the allowed lung burden for plutonium. This was based on standards for nuclear plant workers. She was contaminated. She would have to be careful. But they didn't expect her to die or have any serious health problems or mutations. Now, there's been a long... Long debate among nuclear scientists about what is a, quote, acceptable amount of radiation to have in one's body. I don't have those answers. I'm not a scientist. But the plutonium in Karen Silkwood's body was put there in one way or another on purpose. We know that. And plutonium was being put into dozens of other bodies of workers in the Kerr-McGee plant on accident and that's thanks to lax safety protocols and rushed production. And that was the problem that Karen Silkwood and her union still needed to confront. On the evening of November 13, 1974, Silkwood met with other members of her union at the Hub Cafe in Crescent. They were meeting to prepare for contract negotiations. Alcohol wasn't served at these meetings. Karen sipped iced tea. Her friend from the plant, Wanda Jean Young, later testified that she saw Silkwood leafing through thick documents, something like printed photographs in a notebook. She spoke to Silkwood just after the meeting. Young said that Karen was agitated, worried that someone had deliberately poisoned her and that she might die. But according to Young's testimony, quote, She said that there was one thing she was glad about that she had all the proof concerning falsification of records. And as she said this, she clenched her hand more firmly on the folder and the notebook that she was holding. She told me she was on the way to meet Steve Wodka and a New York Times reporter to give them this material. Silkwood then left in her Honda Civic down Highway 74 to meet the reporter and Steve Wadka from the OCAW at a hotel in Oklahoma City. She had recently promised Wadka over the phone that she had photographic evidence of Kerr-McGee doctoring the welding on nuclear fuel rods. That night, she was supposed to go public with her findings. But it would never happen. It was a dry night. She was driving south on Highway 74, a mostly straight road that she traveled on regularly. Sometime between 7.10 and 7.30 p.m., Karen Silkwood's car veered suddenly to the left off of the highway and went 240 feet down a washboard shoulder at the side of the road. The car then struck the wing wall of a concrete culvert, something that a driver wouldn't be able to see from the highway. The Honda Civic flew almost 25 feet forward in the air and landed on its left side in front of the concrete channel. Her car was found by a passing truck driver at around 7.30 p.m. The driver's boss raced to a gas station to call highway patrol. But before the police ever arrived, two managers from Kerr-McGee, who had been hostile to the union, just happened upon the scene. kerr supervisors Fred Sullivan and Law Godwin later claimed to the FBI that they were driving down Highway 74 after helping Godwin's wife fix a flat tire. They claimed that they saw people standing by the side of the road, stopped, and went down to the crash site to investigate. They recognized Karen Silkwood's body, and Sullivan sped off to phone for help while Godwin remained at the crash site. Now, remember those files that Wanda Jean Young swore that she witnessed Karen Silkwood flipping through at the cafe? Those ones that Karen told her she was going to deliver to the New York Times reporter at 8 p.m. Those files were never found. Kerr McGee claims that it's because photographic evidence of them doctoring nuclear fuel rods doesn't exist. Keep in mind, two non-union managers from Kerr McGee just happened upon the crash site at least 15 minutes before the police did. By about 8:15, The Oklahoma Highway Patrol arrived with an ambulance as the tow truck hauled the Honda Civic out of the concrete channel. Silkwood would be pronounced dead at the hospital. The police investigation into Silkwood's death would be brief. Rick Fagan, the Oklahoma state trooper who arrived at the scene, would mark on the police report that she fell asleep at the wheel. He also wrote down that she was under the influence of alcohol and that witnesses at the Hub Cafe advised her not to drive. In fact, none of that was true. No one at the union meeting warned Karen against driving, and no one was drinking. Everyone who spoke to her just before the accident said that she seemed alert, but concerned about her plutonium poisoning. Trooper Fagan also mistook a thermos full of spoiled tomato juice in the back seat of the Honda for an alcoholic beverage. An autopsy would show only a minimal presence of alcohol in Karen's blood. This was probably a residual from the previous night, not enough to impair driving. The coroner also found 0.35 milligrams of quaaludes in her system, with another pill undissolved in her stomach. This is well over the recommended dosage to induce drowsiness. So it appeared to be an open-and-shut case to the Oklahoma Highway Patrol, that Karen Silkwood just fell asleep at the wheel and crashed her car. But remember, she took Quaaludes recreationally, and since Quaaludes can cause users to build up a physical tolerance, what might have been the recommended dose to cause drowsiness in most people wouldn't really be the same for Silkwood. Also, the car went straight along the side of a highway, over 200 feet on a washboard shoulder. That's something that's likely to wake up a driver with bumps and jolts. The medical examiner on the case didn't really bother to investigate Silkwood's tolerance to Quaaludes any further. Instead, he simply took the highway patrol at their word that she probably died in a single-car accident. When questioned in court about his failure to do a thorough toxicology investigation, the doctor replied, quote, Quincy, we ain't. Many people who knew Karen didn't believe that she just fell asleep at the wheel. Tony Mazaki of the OCAW suspected foul play, so he financed an independent investigation. The man that the OCAW hired to investigate Silkwood's death was A.O. Pipkin. He was a professional accident investigator who studied wrecks for insurance companies. He was most well-known for investigating the car accident that killed actress Jane Mansfield in 1967. Pipkin was able to get direct access to Silkwood's car. Karen's boyfriend, Drew Stevens, reclaimed the wreck from the tow truck company just a few days after the crash. Pipkin found a few very important details that the Oklahoma Highway Patrol either missed or refused to investigate. 1. The bottom part of the left rear fender had fresh dents on them. The highway patrol would later claim that these were probably made by the wrecker that pulled the car from the side of the road. But according to Pipkin, these dents were concave, not likely to be made from a tow truck pulling on the fender. They looked like they were made by the tires of another car. He found residue inside the dents, and had this tested in a lab. It was rubber. There was also evidence that Silkwood's car struggled to get back onto the highway before the crash. The grass by the shoulder of the road was chewed up, as if a car swerved back and forth through it. If she was asleep at the wheel, the car likely wouldn't move back and forth like that. And remember, Karen ran obstacle races as a hobby. She won trophies for it, so she was a good driver. If she couldn't get back on the road, it could mean that someone was forcing her off. Another clue. The steering wheel to Karen Silkwood's Honda Civic was bent forward at the sides. According to Pipkin, that meant that she was gripping the wheel tightly at the time of the crash, since the impact forced the steering wheel forward where her hands were. When drivers are asleep and crash, the steering wheel is usually found bent forward at the top and bottom where the body strikes the wheel. Since the steering wheel was bent at the sides, this meant that Karen Silkwood must have been awake at the time of her crash, and coupled with the tire dents in her bumper, it appeared that someone had deliberately run her off the road. Tony Mazaki quickly forwarded this news to the Attorney General to open up a federal investigation. Only, he probably did it too quickly, because Pipkin wasn't finished drawing up his report. The press caught on to the story, and then so did Kerr McGee. Kerr McGee hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency to dig up dirt on A.O. Pipkin. The Pinkertons leaked false information on Pipkin's credentials to the New York Times and other media outlets, outright lying or exaggerating about Pipkin's record, and claiming that he had no credentials. In fact, Pipkin had been a professional accident investigator for years, and he was frequently used as an expert witness on the subject in court cases. But the damage was done. It appeared that the official story would stay, and Karen Silkwood's death would remain an accident. At the Kerr-McGee plant, the company muscled the union into a weak contract. They were able to. One of the key members of the bargaining committee had just died. Management followed this up with a campaign of intimidation of its own employees, subjecting workers to mandatory polygraph tests that were ostensibly about safety. In reality, they grilled workers on their connections to Silkwood, Steve Wodka, and other union officials. Tony Mazaki of the OCAW filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, who kicked it up to the FBI. The NLRB investigation into Kerr-McGee was damning, finding that the company had violated the civil rights of its employees. At this time, the Atomic Energy Commission also investigated Kerr-McGee and found that Karen Silkwood was deliberately contaminated, although they would not pursue who did it. The AEC also found that lab technicians in Kerr-McGee had been altering the photo negatives of nuclear fuel rods although not at a level that the AEC thought would sacrifice safety. The AEC investigation angered the union, who felt that the federal agency's cozy ties with the industry prevented it from both ensuring health and safety, or getting to the bottom of Karen Silkwood's death. They would also be unsatisfied with the FBI investigation into Kerr-McGee, This was mostly a copy and paste of the company's and Oklahoma Highway Patrol's account of the wreck that took Silkwood's life. But the case started to get public attention. An ABC special on the Silkwood crash aired in the spring of 1975. The road tests that ABC ran on the same stretch of highway, using the same model of car that Silkwood drove, all suggested that Pipkin was right, and Silkwood was awake at the time of the crash. Major investigative news stories about Silkwood came out that year in Rolling Stone and the New York Times. Before too long, Karen Silkwood was becoming a popular cause. Sarah Nelson, the Labor Secretary for the National Organization of Women, was one of many activists who put pressure on the government to take another look at Silkwood's death. In November of 1975, that campaign produced results and Senator Lee Metcalf of Montana announced a congressional investigation into the matter. Metcalf would step back from most of the committee's work. The lion's share of that was handled on an energy subcommittee in the House, led by Congressman John Dingell, a Democrat from Michigan. Dingell assembled a team of investigators to gather information about the case. Now, the scope of the congressional investigation was limited they were not able to address the cause of Karen Silkwood's death, but rather the conduct of the FBI and the Justice Department as they investigated the case. One of the most interesting witnesses to come forward to the Dingle Subcommittee was Jackie Srugey. She was a copy editor at the Nashville Tennessean newspaper and was in the process of publishing a book on nuclear power. Srugey just so happened to be a close friend of Larry Olson. He was the FBI agent who led the federal investigation into Silkwood's death. Sruji caught the attention of the congressional investigators and was questioned on what she knew about the incident. She claimed to know quite a bit. Specifically, that she photocopied all of the files of the FBI investigation while visiting her friend Olson's office. Sruji was a difficult witness to pin down. She would only drop bits and pieces of information, claiming that she didn't want to ruin the success of her book by scooping her own story in a congressional hearing. Jackie Sruge gave the impression that Silkwood may have been onto something too explosive with the material unaccounted for that's the 40 pounds of missing plutonium from the Kermagee plant. But she also gave the impression that the FBI conducted a thorough investigation even claiming that the files she saw contained private conversations from Karen Silkwood's apartment. This meant that someone must have installed surveillance equipment at Silkwood's residence before her death, which would be a civil rights violation. Up to this point, most of what the Dingle Subcommittee gathered was pretty damning for the federal investigators, They found that the Justice Department's memorandum on Silkwood was shallow and full of gossip about the victim spread by her employer. FBI agent Larry Olson's investigation focused on a narrow set of theories, none of which included the possibility that Silkwood could have been run off the road and killed. That option wasn't even entertained by the FBI. Olson was also strangely obsessed with unrelated details from Silkwood's personal life. He was fixated on her sexual habits, real or imagined, and her rumored bisexuality. This would be a common thread in the Karen Silkwood affair. When Kerr-McGee or the federal authorities faced pressure on their handling of the case, they would release information that they thought would defame Karen Silkwood in the eyes of the public. Jackie Sroogey was a risky witness to call before Congress. She was cagey about just how she obtained information on the case, and she wasn't open about her professional background. Nonetheless, in April 1976, she appeared before John Dingell's subcommittee in D.C. to testify. She insisted on an open hearing. And to everyone's surprise, she towed the Kerr-McGee line on Karen Silkwood. Rather than open up about what Silkwood possibly uncovered at Kerr-McGee, she focused on the victim's marijuana use and her alleged emotional instability. It sounded a lot like what the subcommittee heard from the FBI and company management. Congressman Dingle cut Sruji off, saying, quote, "We're not interested in the personal affairs of Karen Silkwood." As it turns out, Sruji's statements came directly from a three-page report prepared by Kerr McGee. In her testimony, she also accused the union of poisoning Silkwood with plutonium, as part of some convoluted plan to embarrass the company. Within a week, it became clear exactly why Jackie Shrugy was doing all of this. When investigators from the subcommittee deposed FBI agent Larry Olson for questioning, he let slip that Jackie Shrugy had, quote, a special relationship with the Bureau. In fact... Jackie Shrooge was a long-time paid informant with the FBI as part of the COINTELPRO campaign. Starting in 1963, Shrooge went undercover to meetings of the Students for a Democratic Society and the Freedom Riders to spy on civil rights activists and other left-wing dissidents. She would continue her career as an FBI informant while working as a copy editor for the Nashville Tennessean. This was not information that she divulged to the Congressional Subcommittee, and her role as a witness appeared to bolster the reputation of the FBI while doing everything she could to sabotage Dingle subcommittee's efforts. Sruji's role as a double agent became public knowledge, and it was an embarrassment for the Bureau. The FBI responded by attempting to smear members of the committee and their investigators in the press even planting false stories that John Dingell was a frequent customer at a Detroit brothel. This story would be exposed as a hit job, and Dingell would cruise to re-election in 1976. But Republicans on the House subcommittee successfully brought the investigation into the FBI to an end. Kerr-McGee was a powerful oil company, and they were able to exert significant lobbying pressure in this regard. But it wasn't over yet for the mystery of Karen Silkwood. Shortly after the congressional hearings on the Silkwood case fell apart in 1976, a young left-wing attorney named Daniel Sheehan approached Karen's parents. Sheehan wanted to file a civil suit on behalf of their daughter, alleging that she was both physically injured by her employer and that she had her civil rights violated. Sheehan made it clear that he couldn't bring criminal charges since he wasn't a government prosecutor, but if he did uncover evidence of a murder, then the case could be turned over to the state for prosecution. Karen Silkwood's parents agreed, and Dan Sheehan joined forces with a dedicated core of Silkwood activists, including Sarah Nelson from the National Organization of Women and a small group of radical Jesuit priests who allowed the team to use their offices in D.C. Sheehan hired a team of private investigators for the pre-trial discovery period. Their job was to depose witnesses and gather information on the case that the congressional hearing might have missed. One of the witnesses that Sheehan's team deposed was Jackie Shrooge. Although she was known to be an FBI informant, she also claimed to have first-hand knowledge about local or federal law enforcement wiretapping Karen Silkwood's apartment. In a case concerning Silkwood's First Amendment rights, This information would be very important. But getting this information out of Jackie Shrooge would also prove to be very difficult. Over several weeks, Shrooge led Dan Sheehan's team on a wild goose chase. She claimed reporters' privilege for important details of the case, and said outright that she wouldn't say anything to damage her friend, the FBI agent Larry Olson. Shrooge contradicted her previous statements to the Congressional Committee. She was now claiming that FBI documents she claimed to have she had never seen before. She attempted to escape deposition and perjured herself multiple times. Sheehan knew that despite all of this, the government was protecting her. Even though Sruji committed perjury and Sheehan reported it to the U.S. Attorney's Office, nothing was ever done about it. It appeared that once again, Jackie Sruji was attempting to sabotage an investigation regarding Karen Silkwood. The lawyers were able to squeeze one interesting detail out of Shrooge's deposition, though. They got her to admit that the publisher of the book that she was writing on nuclear energy worked for the CIA. The CIA's involvement in the Silkwood case is a thread that Sheehan's legal team was never really allowed to follow. So I can't say for sure what was going on there. What I can say is that I do believe they had some kind of interest in the goings-on at Kerr-McGee. After all, they made plutonium fuel there, and you use plutonium to make nuclear weapons. Now, this part of Dan Sheehan's pre-trial investigation ended up getting thrown out of the civil case. But let me detour for a bit here, because some really weird stuff happened. One of Dan Sheehan's most trusted private investigators was a man named Bill Taylor. Taylor was a former Marine. He had worked with Sheehan for some time on criminal investigations. Taylor started by digging into the allegation that Karen Silkwood's apartment had been wiretapped. He found that several of the law enforcement agencies involved in the Silkwood case, including the Oklahoma City Police and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, were members of a private network called the Law Enforcement Intelligence Units, that's the LEIU. The LEIU was started in the 50s as a private compact of state and local police departments. The idea was that they would break the FBI's monopoly on a national filing system of criminal records. This would allow different police departments to share information across jurisdictions. Information on suspects and criminals was stored in a central computer based out of East Lansing, Michigan. Member organizations in the LEIU were all sworn to secrecy. They weren't supposed to share information on the organization to the public and since it was a private compact, police departments would try to use the LEIU's status to avoid Freedom of Information Act requests. Not surprisingly, the law enforcement intelligence units rather than acting merely as a program to allow districts to share information, also became used as a tool to spy on activists. On a personal note, researching this case made me pretty confident that the LEIU spied on my own dad when he was taking part in anti-war demonstrations in East Lansing in the early 70s. Dan Sheehan's team finally got a successful Freedom of Information Act request on one LEIU member, the Oklahoma City Police Department. They learned that the department had a huge array of surveillance equipment for bugging private residences, and that the police had plainclothes informants establish contact with Silkwood and her boyfriend Drew Stevens just a few days before her death. These police informants befriended Drew Stevens, and they were even able to secretly photograph his diary for police records. Through depositions, Sheehan's team also learned that the Kerr-McGee Security Division worked with the local police in the surveillance operation on Stevens and Silkwood. Remember, the Atomic Energy Commission was never able to establish just how the plutonium got into Silkwood's apartment. They found no traces in her car and no trail from the nuclear plant to Silkwood's home. Well, the Oklahoma City police were working hand-in-glove with Kerr-McGee to spy on Silkwood, and they gained access to her apartment. Just something to think about. Bill Taylor traced the police department's surveillance equipment to a company in Florida called the Audio Intelligence Device Corporation. This company manufactured wiretaps and bugs, and they shared a building in Fort Lauderdale with its sister company, the National Intelligence Academy. The National Intelligence Academy taught students how to tap phones, bug rooms, and they owned a private airstrip that sent regular flights out to Andros Island in the Bahamas. Bill Taylor never got proof, but he strongly suspected the NIA was a front operation for the CIA. And, honestly, that wouldn't surprise me. While he was in Florida in the summer of 1976, Taylor began chasing leads on what happened to the MUF, the material unaccounted for, the 40 or so pounds of plutonium that went missing from the Kerr-McGee plant. One day, he noticed that his car was being followed back to his motel. After shaking his pursuers, he returned to his room, where Taylor claims that he was attacked by two men, one wielding a knife. Taylor injured one of them, and the men fled. He wrote down a few words in a foreign language that he heard the men speaking. He would later learn that this was Farsi, of course, which is spoken in Iran, which at the time was a major U.S. ally. None of this can really be proven. It was just one person's account. And unfortunately, the thread connecting Silkwood to national security interests never got its day in court. Specifically, attorney Dan Sheehan attempted to dig for the truth about who Jackie Strugi was and what she was doing in the Silkwood case. Federal District Judge Frank Theis stopped Sheehan cold in his tracks. It was a matter of national security that Strugi's real employment would be kept secret. Sheehan asked the judge if they could explore in court who hired Strugi to write her book. Said Judge Thice, quote, It's all part of it. I can't divulge it. The implications are sinister. Soon, the civil rights portion of the case against Kerr-McGee would be thrown out as well on legal grounds. This meant that the civil trial that the Silkwood Estate brought before Kerr-McGee in an Oklahoma court in 1979 would have to be within strict boundaries. Once again, There would be no further investigation into Silkwood's death. There would be no more digging into the role of the FBI or the police. The trial would be about damages done to Silkwood herself through the exposure to plutonium at the Kerr-McGee plant. The plaintiff's case would now ride on proving to the jury that Kerr-McGee was negligent in their handling of plutonium and that Silkwood was not responsible for her own poisoning. It would not be that hard to prove that Kerr-McGee was negligent. Dan Sheehan brought in a colleague, Jerry Spence, to fill in as trial lawyer. Spence was a theatrical lawyer who wore a cowboy hat and had a populist flair. He loved going after big companies like Kerr-McGee. And he tore the Kerr-McGee witnesses apart on the stand. The company brought forward their health physician, Dr. Wayne Norwood, who declared in court that he believed Silkwood poisoned herself with the plutonium. During cross-examination, Jerry Spence got Norwood to admit that his doctorate was in poultry sciences, and he had no specific training in health physics. Spence also got several kerr managers to admit to egregious safety violations in the handling of plutonium, that they had workers in heavy respirators for 12 hours or more, That's against AEC regulations. That they had their safety manual hardly mentioned cancer. And that many workers had only a few hours of training, and many did not even know that plutonium could cause cancer. The defense brought Dr. George Voles, an actual health physicist who performed Silkwood's full-body scan at Los Alamos. He confirmed that her levels of radiation were within safe limits, according to the Atomic Energy Commission. During cross-examination, Jerry Spence got Dr. Voles to admit that the AEC's acceptable dose of plutonium was based on an average patient, an average that might not be appropriate for Karen Silkwood, who was under 100 pounds, asthmatic, and smoked heavily. In the end, the plaintiff's argument won out. The jury found that Karen Silkwood was poisoned by Kerr-McGee plutonium that somehow escaped the plant and that she didn't do it herself. They also found that the company would be responsible for up to $10.5 million in damages to Karen Silkwood and her estate. It was a precedent-setting case, but unfortunately, Kerr-McGee would drag it out in appeals that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Finally, in 1986, 12 years after Karen's death, and 7 years after her civil trial, Kerr-McGee settled out of court with the family of Karen Silkwood. All that her parents and her three children would get after over a decade of legal battles was $1.3 million. The circumstances of Karen Silkwood's death remain, at least officially, a mystery. I think that from what I know now, she was likely run off the road and killed by her employer, Kerr-McGee. I also believe that they probably poisoned her with plutonium, either to intimidate or kill her. The official investigation into her accident was shoddy and overlooked any possibility of foul play, possibilities that an expert traffic accident investigator found almost immediately. I also think that it's quite likely that kerr managers took the evidence of fuel rod tampering from Silkwood's car after the crash. Remember two company supervisors just happened upon the crash before police did. And it was proven during the civil trial that local police departments had a working relationship with kerr mcgee security. I don't think that it's too out there to believe that corrupt officials at an energy company would do whatever it takes to hide evidence like this. Union agitators have been murdered in this country's history before. And I wouldn't put it past the FBI to attempt to cover it up. We know from Jackie Scrooge's involvement in the case that a paid FBI informant tried to sabotage two separate investigations. As for the 40 pounds of missing plutonium, I have no idea. That's a lot of plutonium. It's enough to make about three nuclear bombs. And I have my doubts that something like that just went missing. Perhaps someone at the plant was selling it? Or perhaps it was being secretly hidden away to give to U.S. allies to develop their own nuclear programs. Remember, this all happened during the Cold War. After her death, Karen Silkwood transformed from a real human being who had a normal but sometimes chaotic life into a cause. She became a symbol for activists of all stripes, but especially for the anti-nuclear movement. This is probably because the particulars of her estate civil trial hinged on just how much plutonium is a, quote, safe amount for the human body to have in its system. This was something that was fiercely debated between proponents and opponents of nuclear energy. The only thing I'm confident in saying about all that is that I have no idea. I'm not a scientist. But I have learned that Silkwood's own family insists to this day that Karen was never an anti-nuclear activist. After all, she worked in a nuclear fuel plant. Many people who knew Karen Silkwood best remembered her for a different cause, the cause of workplace safety. I'll close the episode with these words written in 1999 by Tony Mazaki, the president of Karen's union, the OCAW. He had this to say about Karen Silkwood, quote, Karen Silkwood was a union martyr. Her experience was not that unusual in the trade union movement, except that she ultimately died for her cause. We must remember her story, because it is a symbol of the collective efforts and courage of the millions of trade unionists who have fought and still fight to defend the health safety, and security of their fellow workers. This has been Conspiracy You Can Believe In. I'll have another episode out next month. Thanks for listening.